I mean, like, look, when you're going doing something that matters, something associated with money, maybe people are doing that with all kinds of assumptions that they're not bothering to think through, right? You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with an effort to live a better life, a self-improved life. Rudy's thinking about his self-improvement. This episode... I need a lot of self-improvement. It's like, no. This episode is such a perfect mesh between the two of us. We have what? the chair of the philosophy department from UCI, Dr. Aaron James, and his specialty is talking about money and finance. Amazing. Did you ever think UCI, that there could be somebody, like in the Venn diagram, we thought that there was no overlap. We found Dr. Aaron James is the overlap. Let's be fair to our international audience members. UCI is the University of California at Irvine. Irvine is a place in the in the center of Orange County where Gwen and I are from. That has no reflection upon Dr. Aaron. I'm just saying we're, I'm trying to be geographically fair to, because we've got a good international audience. Thank you for that. I think our international audience members will find this uh, episode very interesting. Because we are talking to somebody very important, very interesting background. I mean, the fact that he, no wonder he's a philosopher. He wanted to live <laughs> the, the, the surfer's life. I mean, he kind of lived that for a little while. And, you know, I, I didn't really know about the surfer philosophy and the vagabond life of surfers. And we touch upon that in this episode. We talk about a lot on this episode and money and its relationship to happiness. And to the state. That's what I thought was interesting. And to say very much so, taking a pragmatic approach to money, meaning we're not saying, oh, no, you you don't need any money to be happy. It's like, well, no, you know, you need some money to be happy, right? It's not the key to all happiness, but it's important to have a good relationship with money. I'd go ahead and even slot this episode, Gwen, in part of our episodes on finances. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think? I think so too. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in this episode. It's really nice to see what he wrote about money. And then also, since he's written the, his latest essay that I read and that I quote during the episode, but that we've had inflation since then, a potential recession on the horizon, student debt forgiveness. So we've got a lot more to think about money. So I I was curious in this episode about what his thoughts were just three years ago to right now and how do we apply that. And for me, since I'm in the realm of moral theory and I also really like existentialism, it was fascinating for me to learn from Dr. James about the relationship between morality and money and the state and governing bodies. And it's not a connection that I had really been making because a lot of times when people think about morality, they might have this idea of finger wagging. You can do this, you can't do that, or what you learn on Sundays. But he is talking about moral theory in terms of what is a moral state. And that relationship to governing and how people can afford their lives is extremely important. And I loved, I'm so grateful. Thank you, Dr. James, for coming on the pod to talk about this work. I love it. Did you want to mention where our audience, now we don't talk about this at all on this episode, but where might other people have read something or heard of something that Dr. Aaron James has written? What was that well-known okay, thing? So he wrote a book on analyzing the term assholes. And so is that what we're talking about? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah we are. Yeah. That's yeah. initially why I reached out to him. Kudos to I him. Like, I, I, I was like, who wrote this book? What is going on? Yeah. And it got 
it got a lot of circulation and it got oh, yeah. so much popularity that he did a lot of podcasts on this book. And so when I reached out to him, he said, you know what? I've already talked about assholes. And so, um, ad nauseum. Yeah. And so he said, let's talk about some more re my recent stuff. I'm going to put in the show notes, a link to, let's see his website and his books on asshole. And then also the essay that we're referencing in, in this podcast. But yeah. For once, I thought I was going to get analyzed on air. By, oh, please, I thought he was going to be like, this is why you're an asshole. I thought, really, that's why I really wanted to do the episode. That that said, we talked about money, which, you know, as a bond lawyer, as a finance lawyer, we even talk about blockchain on the episode. So I'm very excited for it. Yeah, let's talk about money and philosophy and finance with Dr. Aaron James. Aaron, welcome to the show. Can you tell us, your philosophy professor, chair of the philosophy department at UC Irvine, can you give us a bit of your background and your philosophical interests? Yes, uh, thanks. It's really nice to be with you. I guess my main areas of where I really, things I really work on as a, you know, research, you know, writing that pays the bills as it were, as a, <laughs> is, a, I mean, I do foundations of ethics, uh, moral theory, and political philosophy, and political philosophy, especially stuff on international economics. Um, and fairness in the global economy. And then more recently, money, money and banking and finance, domestic and global finance, and its connection with political philosophy. So that's the main things. But then as a sort of popular writer, um, you know, I'm pretty, I don't know, promiscuous. <laughs> I just cover like whatever topic seems like, this seems like there's something new and interesting to say that would, that people would like to read about. Um, and then I just write about that. And there I'm less, I'm focusing both on What's something that the tools of philosophy can help you us articulate something that's not really not really known, but also what would really connect with people who don't have a philosophy background. So I'm thinking about like, what does this topic mean to me? How do I connect it existentially as a person in life, you know, that is the basis for relating with my reader, something that we have in common, even if you don't sort of care in a college-like way about the latest theories of X, Y, Z, you know. So you start out with some interesting unexplored topic and then use the tools of philosophy to show that it illuminates and, and Professor, uh, um, Professor, or Aaron, yeah, um, sorry, Aaron, oh, yeah. sorry, Gwen, you, can I just ask a question about his promiscuity? I, Is that okay? I, uh, I was just, I was just curious. I was just, I was just, of course, no, Aaron, of course, knows, intellectual Aaron knows what to say. I, I was just curious. Right? Like he knows, he knew that was the buzzword right. and Rudy's like, <clears throat> Rudy just popped right up. <laughs> yeah. But Aaron, speaking of your promiscuity, what, anything in particular over the last one or two months that you have been requested to philosophize on that our listeners might find kind of interesting? Yeah, I think, I mean, a recent thing, I mean, a recent thing I've, that I've come to really care about is, I mean, a lot, a big topic is meaning in life, right? That sort of, it's an old topic. It's, it's really hard to say anything very good about it. There's philosophical literature that chips away at it, but the, there's a view that I've, that's a relatively new view that I've become more sympathetic to that's really helped me clarify the meaning of my own life. So at sort of midlife, thinking about looking back over my forties. So that view is just that the meaning of life is just the story, the best story you can tell about the events in your life. And like a story that you are like maybe glad to have lived or not glad to have lived, you know, like, and so the story could be one of, it could be a story of success. You were trying to do something and you succeeded. You had rising fortunes. It could be not a, being not a complete success. It could be a comeuppance. It could be a story of poetic justice. It could be a story of serendipity. It could be tragedy, you know, so these are like standard uh, literary tropes like of the kind that organized, you know, most novels or stories or movies. My thought is that those are basic storage frames are the ones that we actually do use to make sense of our lives and constitute the meaning of our life. For example, I've been writing this 
these stories about my own misadventures in charity in Sumatra over my 40s. And I've come to think of that now as a story of not being a complete success, well, a story of misadventure and serendipity. And once I tell it as tell the same events in that frame, I feel like, wow, that's really, that's the best story that really captures the meaning of, of my life, of that part of my life. And I love that story, even if I'm not a complete success. So I'm kind of like happy that it happened to me. I'm happy to, I lived it. I'm happy that I was the main character in that movie that, or that book that was my life. And I think that's really is meaning in life, that kind of storytelling. Yeah, I, I mean, you're you're literally talking our language. We One of the things that we like to focus on here on Good is in the Details is the power of creativity and how you can get meaning out of life and how important creativity is in happiness. I'm very focused on creativity in that I had success because I became a law firm partner, right? Oh, wow, I made a law firm partner, yet I was very unhappy. And then I did some exploration. I realized, well, it's because I quelled the creative side of me. Mm -hmm. And once I started doing the creative side of me, interestingly enough, you know, more success kind of came from it. So I do think storytelling is key. Now, interestingly enough, I'm glad that you talked about something that you're focused on right now is the meaning of life because you write a lot about money. (laughs) <laughs> right, you. I mean, I read. I've read. I'm reading your articles, and I'm reading about that. So, a lot of people would would equate having a lot of money with happiness, with success. So, you being who you are, well known, and, and you write about the stuff. Where does money fit in to the meaning of life and success to you, or or in in your view of life? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, um, I mean, you obviously need money to do you know, need money to do nice things and interesting things, creative things to even to stay creative. So a certain amount of it is necessary, but I guess that like the more philosophical thing that I have to say about it in connection with how it affects us personally is that the main way of thinking about what money is, I mean, there's a big question, what is money? And I think of it as a kind of promissory credit and debt relationship, but that doesn't tell you why it really grabs us. What grabs us because it's a quantitative way of keeping score. So it's a scorekeeping system. So just the way that like social media likes and followers, those numbers grab our attention and seem to stand for a certain kind of value that sort of captures our imagination and our motivation. Money does the same thing. So money, the way it motivates us because it's a form of scorekeeping. And that's why people who have everything they could ever need and all the money they want, they still want more. They want to get do better and like a get a higher score in the game, as it were, or they're competing with other people, or there's status attached to it. It's the main way that we judge status, comparing ourselves to others. And for many, this is a Rousseau point, you know, like gauge our own self-worth. But our ability to love ourselves partly depends on, on how we are valued in the eyes of other people, how we perceive it. And that's attached a, mo- a quantitative score, which uh, is a, a money score in many cases. And just the way... F- Facebook or social media likes or whatever number, those have this powerful grip on our attention that really go beyond the value that of what money buys or goes or the sort of time it frees up to do more interesting things. That's why money makes the world go round. And it's also why money can distort our values and distort what really matters to us. You know, so why you can go through decades building a career is a case like sounds like you described with kindly with money and certain scores in mind. And then come out the other side and realize, wait a minute, what's happened to the things I cared about most? And it's wonderful you rediscovered that. But like, how could you be so detached from it, you know, for so long? That's the power of, of numbers over a scorekeeping device and sort of gradually in taking over our motivations. Do you think it's even possible to try to eliminate money from any type of discussion of 
you know, happiness or self-worth? Is that just unrealistic as, as we are as human beings because of the nature of the world that we live in? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think it's, it's difficult in a money oriented society to escape it. So it, like the burden to a large part falls on us each ourselves to sort of be very self-aware about when money and stat- as a form of status scorekeeping is like taking over our lives and values, especially if you're a younger person, you don't know anything else. You think that's the only way to really you know do well in society. But I think it is something one can break free from on one's own, but it's made more difficult because we're in such a money focused culture where so much status is assigned around money. But that, so it's, that's not inevitable because we could have a culture that's less oriented around money as a way of keeping score. I mean, you start to see that already by people just being motivated by like fame as measured in say social media accounts, you know, those numbers. So that already is a way of a different set of numbers displacing the value of money. And so people might, you know, growing up be fine if they're famous on TikTok, they're TikTok famous, but they don't have a lot of money. They have enough money to keep making TikTok videos or Instagram travel, you know, stories or whatever, you know, like uh, they might feel fine with that because their numbers are good. They're sort of like a different number. Now that's, that's sort of just replacing one number for a different number. Oh yeah. But maybe that's, maybe that's a little better than just being a purely money oriented society, but it's still not better. It's still something better, which is having a culture that's just less about scorekeeping or puts more informal value on other things like creative achievement or just time with friends or the beauty of nature or our contributions to people's lives, improving people's lives, you know, advances towards justice through the law or politics, you know, things like that, where that was really celebrated in a way that could grab us as much and be, you know, define our lives as much as the, as the, any numbers do, you know, that's a bigger challenge. A, A culture could be like that in theory, but it's up, it's swimming against the power of numbers in effect to grab our attention. There is so much on my mind. I was reading your, your paper money in the social contract. And there's a paragraph, if, if you don't mind, if I read it out loud, that just struck me because I'm thinking about so many of the concerns that people have today with inflation, student debt, and those things. So that's what occurred to me. You write at the most basic level, if a ruler legally imposes any debt upon people, the imposing fellow and his minions surely must also provide for some means of settling that debt, lest potentially arbitrary commands commands ever further indebt them without recourse. A ruler's money is precisely what allows us to be free, debt-free rather than being continually subject to that ruler's will, in effect enslaved. Um, and sta- uh, if I may just keep going a little bit, establishment of a money as a means of debt settlement is thus a basic prerequisite of a Republican liberty and liberty will be secure and enjoyed only if the money is accepted back and known to be accepted year after year in routine settlement by the sovereign's taxman. So I just thought this paragraph stood out to me because I was thinking about some of the discussion about student loans and about inflation. And sometimes just in everyday vernacular, people talk about money, you know, the idea of money is the root of all evil. There's all this attachment to money that seems to be negative. And your paper is analyzing the role it plays in a moral society, that it's actually key with a morality in the way that the government works and its legitimacy. So I was wondering if you could expand on that or as you write, when you're writing this, and then you fast forward a few years, and now what does your current self think about the issues, let's say, with inflation or our relationship with money and the government? Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, no, that's a juicy <laughs> passage. Thanks. I mean, uh, I mean, it gets at, this is kind of an interesting point about the creative development and like 
why I you know love philosophy and stuff. I mean, because I I grew up into a, in a time I was educated in political philosophy and in economics at a time when the assumption was that money doesn't matter as except for a tool for getting whatever other outcome you think is morally necessary. So money's just an instrument. It's just a means of exchange. It's a transaction technology, but you can use it as a policy tool to create incentives. But it has no intrinsic moral significance otherwise. That's still a standard view within orthodox neoclassical economics. And it's the st- it was the standard view in political philosophy. Well, it still maybe is. I was all the people I respect most in the world basically think that and that I, I raise up in that. But I think it's totally wrong now. And uh, my thinking about this really started to change after the 2008 financial crisis, where the role of money and, the, and, and central banking became just more obvious and more obviously political and having an obvious like more central role in maintaining, you know, the social fabric and and basic equity and social cooperation. And then similarly, that happened with the coronavirus response, similar to. So that process like has led to this big rethink. Even a book I wrote about fairness in the global economy in 2012 still had the standard view of money as I would think about it. And I'm, I'm now going to write another book that has a better, I think, view of money and banking that's sort of correcting for my own mistakes. And I'm trying to convince the political philosophers that we've all been out to lunch on this really basic issue. And the key thing that what that passage is getting at is it's not just that money is money is is an instrument for lots of things, but it's really part and parcel of the very nature of society. The way we organize social relations is basically through credit and debt relationships that are defined both in relation market relationships, but also other employment relationships, but also through taxes, through through laws, through government fiscal policy, and also monetary policies of a central of a central bank, for example, just in managing how much money there is in the economy. That's in connection with how much goods or services are being produced that gets you inflation, those two things. Now, so all these things are like tied to money, money issues. And they go back to the fundamentals of political philosophy, basic issues like liberty and equality. And that passage uh, you read makes the connection to liberty understood in a Republican sense. Liberty is not just not having people interfere with you, but having certain, well, one way to think about it is not having people arbitrarily interfere with you and being protected against that interference such that you're able to do things. Basic liberty in that sense is potentially threatened when the government for imposes a tax liability on you, right? Because then you have to pay that debt or you go to jail. You are definitely interfered with if you're picked up and going down to jail, right? So then it's a requirement of, liber- of legitimacy of a state to then create a money that is the basis for settling that debt that you owe to society. Because otherwise... You're just unfree. You're walking around subject to arbitrary arrest. What frees you from that, what buys your freedom is, as it were, money, the money that's issued that you then get through the market somehow. And then you sort of, as it were, buy your freedom every year when you settle your tax obligation. So that gets to the very fundamentals of political legitimacy of a legitimate state of the basic way societies organize. That's the sort of need, why it needs justification. But then there's part of a, there's a larger story about why, well, what, on what terms am I now supposed to get a hold of this money so that I can buy my freedom every year? Well, do I have to go, you know, kiss the boots of, of a dictator or whatever, or, or an employer who holds all the jobs? That seems like ridiculous, unfair. You know, that's violating a, there's not a, you need an adequate social compact with everyone such that I can think, well, what am I going to spend my days doing, live my life so that I can, meet these tax obligations such that I count as a free and equal member of society and we can cooperate, you know, over time. And for that, you need to, that's where the role of a social contract comes in to legitimate the course of power of the state and also the course of powers that, you know, employment, the system of employment and other, other forces are acting on you. Then that requires sort of access to money is a really crucial thing. So, and one thing I think they argue is that, is that we should have a basic income 
payment in that sense. So it should be a lot easier for us to get money. In fact, we're all credit worthy up to a certain amount of money. We can all be trusted to spend it if only on ourselves or just spend it into the market, which is sale, somebody else's sale, some capitalist sales, which causes and creates profits and employment. So we're all credit worthy up to a certain amount. So, and that's necessary for a legitimate social contract. How should we pay that money given considerations of inflation, et cetera? Well, we should just have the central bank issue the money into accounts that we all hold at the central bank. And then the central bank can then attach interest rates on those accounts to shape how much we spend or save, the way it now adjusts interest rates on the big banks who have accounts at the central bank. The way it now does monetary policy in a creaky, inefficient way with the big banks, it should do with all citizens in all of our citizen accounts at the central bank. So if it, right now, if we're in an inflationary period and the central bank wants to limit how much people are spending, well, it can keep putting money in our bank accounts, but if it raises the interest rate so it's more attractive us to us to save the money instead of spend it, well, then you're not, that money won't be chasing goods and won't be bidding at prices. So right now, if we had this system of central banking in place, the Fed could just hike up those interest rates so that we all have now a great opportunity to save money instead of spend it. And then you'll put off purchase of a refrigerator or a car or whatever and just sit on the money and collect and just you know collect a great return for doing nothing. So it's not that you have to take money from people so they don't spend it by causing higher unemployment. That's the strategy the Fed is going for right now, is kicking people, as few people as possible out of a job, but limiting employment so that people won't spend the money. The money can be in people's bank accounts as long as they don't spend it. And you can uh, you know, influence that by having interest rates just attached directly to those accounts. So that's a way that money is both a matter of legitimacy, but also an equitable social contract. If we think better about the role of money and banking and especially public banking in the organization of society. So Aaron, I'm not going to offend any of my bank clients by making this statement because I've actually made this statement to them. Yeah. So I, I've, I've sat at lunch and we've been talking. So I'm, I do municipal bonds and obviously yeah. the rising interest rates is affecting our market. I mean, issuance yeah. is down 40%, 50%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I've turned to some of my national banks and they're like lamenting. They're like, oh, there's no deals. There's no this. There's no that. I go, yeah, it's all because of interest rates, right? They go, right. And I go, so why am I still getting 0. 0.001 in my accounts? Like, my point being, yeah. the big banks don't seem yet to be paying us the right amount of interest in our accounts. Like, I yeah. only recently started to receive notices from some larger banks, like, oh, our interest rate is now going up to 2% or 3% yeah. or 4%. I mean, to me, it's almost like too little, too late. It, it, yep. it seems like they, I guess maybe what they're trying to do is try to squeeze us for as long as they can with the lower, lower interest rates before we start to feel the pain and then move our money to another bank. I don't know. Something, it's, very, it's a very strange time. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah. Th so what you're describing is just an effect of the creaky and inefficient system that we have where, uh, I mean, because it's not the case that if the central bank raises interest rates so that the big banks with reserve accounts are getting more, they're getting bigger, higher interest. They don't pass on that money on to the people who have deposits hold deposits at their accounts, you know, have accounts at those banks, at the ordinary consumer. They'll only do that depend on their independent idea of what's profitable or not. And if they're just sitting on free money because of higher interest rates, and there's no economic incentive for them to raise our interest rates on those accounts, then they won't, you know, secure deposits or whatever, or, or to encourage profitable lending. If the economy's in decline and there aren't profitable loans to be made, 
loans that'll profit them, then they just won't make them, right? So this is very inefficient. It's called, the metaphor for this is pushing on a string. So the way we have the setup is inefficient, like pushing on, you want the string to move and you're pushing on the back end. So it, it doesn't, the string doesn't move as if you pulled it, it just bubbles, right? So you raise interest rates and you're, the problem is, is the central bank has to raise interest by a lot to, to basically clobber big parts of the economy to kill employment so people don't have money to spend to not bid at prices. And that's just the result of the creaky inefficient. I mean, you want capitalism because it's efficient, supposedly, right? But our monetary system is incredibly efficient in this way, in the way it allocates resources in a way that directly affairs on, on how prices get adjusted. Because it could be done if we just do it uh, do a more centralized way. We it's just cut out the middleman with the banks or give every citizen the same sweetheart deal that the big banks already get and then run monetary policy through democratically with sort of every citizen involved with just adjusting their own interest. Or if things really get dire, there's a really attractive thing you can do is like, if you really wanted to freeze the amount of money, so like it's like the equivalent of wartime rationing, you can just hold the amount of money. The money goes into people's accounts and then a certain amount of it, maybe you just can't spend for say three months or six months, but there's interest still attaching. So in effect, like you're buying a treasury bond, it's equivalent, and then you can't spend the money, but then that's not bidding up prices for that time. But people still feel richer because it's your money, it's in your bank account, and you're getting uh, still getting a good interest rate on it. So people can feel rich without feeling, you know, bidding up prices in a way that's sort of causes inflation and then ultimately makes people poor, right? And now a quick break to tell you about Newsly.me. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up on the top trending articles on the web and topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports to tech to business, and they have podcasts as well. You can listen to Good is in the Details, and they have other podcasts trending from over 80 countries. Download and use Newsly for free now at www.newsly.me or from the link in the description. Check out our show notes. Use promo code the details. I'll also put that in the show notes and receive one month free premium subscription. And now back to the show. Well, I'm curious about your thoughts. I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask this. And if you've been asked this before, my apologies. I'm not aware of it either way. But do you think that was one of the tenets of blockchain or Bitcoin to like remove the central bank and make it the people's money and everything? I mean, I, obviously the blockchain as a, if you're an investor, it's, you know, it's dropped and it continues to drop. It's a, it's a, it's a free for all. But I'm curious about what your thoughts about the philosophy of blockchain slash, you know, cryptocurrency yeah. and how that affects things. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the cool in- novel thing about blockchain is that it showed that it's technologically possible by having a, an effect, a ledger run on so many different computers, a distributed ledger to have something like a money without that just runs as a ledger money without any banker or scorekeeper or central banker keeping score. That's an interesting possibility because it might get you back to the very nature of money, which I think of it as a credit and debt relationship of a kind we keep track of with accounting relationships. One early way to do that is on a ledger, but it was always a ledger that somebody kept track of. You have a scorekeeper, the early banker, later a government official, you know, keeping track. Then you had to have trust for the official, right? The scorekeeper. And so the the blockchain sort of invites this idea that you can have much, you can rely, have a 
less on the scorekeeper, but still keep score through these computerized, new computerized methods. Now, there's an insight there about the nature of money, that it just is this intangible credit and debt relationship that we do accounting with. We can do that by memory alone. There doesn't have to be any physical token, coins, bills, let alone gold bars or paper checks. You don't need any. Those are tokens for the credit and debt relationships, but the credit and debt relationship and needs to be keep track of, but it's not itself something you can touch. It's not a tangible thing. Sort of like with the way, if I give you a promise that I'll meet you, say, to do this podcast, you hold a claim against me and I have an obligation to you to be there, but you can't touch that promise. That promise isn't in your pocket. It's not in my pocket. It's like, that is your asset. It is my liability, but it's not a tangible thing. I could write it down on an email saying, I'll see you there. I could write down on a napkin, I owe you. That's a token of the debt that I owe you, right? So, but that gets re- could be represented on a blockchain. It, could, it now gets represented on computer servers. But now who runs those computers is the big banks hold the computer servers. And then the central bank is sort of piggybacks atop of the big banks that run the payment system. And so one intriguing idea is that, well, you could have... S- it does. You don't really need blockchain to do it, but you could have just a publicly managed ledger that everyone piggybacks off of, including the big banks, and then the central bank just manages it. So you're only trusting one big scorekeeper instead of all the private bank scorekeepers. And now, it's not that the scorekeeping part is all wrong, but it, but the way we have it set up does lead to all these inefficiencies that are directly related to both the social compact to inflation, to how wealthy people are, to inequality. And so a really a lot rides on the way we run things. So that's an interesting insight, I think, that blockchain gives us. The movement among libertarians that really got behind for philosophical reasons, blockchain was, well, let's just get government totally out of the picture. Banks and government, we don't have to trust anybody. Turns out that's not so easy. That kind of arrangement, I think, is inherently unstable for the reasons that you can see now from the instabilities of it, you know. And that's something that ordinary society should be protected against as well. So I think those kinds of private sort of credit debt cooperatives are okay as long as they don't impinge on large society. But to make sure that our the money that we do, that society does run on for the reasons I was explaining. I mean, our basic social compact is run around money as a credit and debt relationship. It organizes everything we do. That can't be left to the fluctuations of speculation and you know animal spirits and stuff like that. And for that, I think you need central bank regulation and precautionary management, looking for destabilizing threats ahead of time, modulation of the money supply over time, including allocation of the money that's related to modulation as well. So that I think a republic, a functioning republic needs these forms of centralized money and money management, but it could be done on a blockchain too, if you wanted to. <laughs> like, yeah. Something that's on my mind as, as I'm listening is this notion of the social contract and the moral state and the difference that let's say somebody of the boomer generation has with Gen Z and millennials with relationship to work. There's a part of me that thinks, regardless if it's true or not, but that there is a sentiment there among Gen Z and millennials that the state has failed their moral obligation. And that that's why you have this quiet resignation that's going on where you're having a younger generation saying, it is not worth my time to spend my day to make money just to live, that the money isn't there as much. So I'm just wondering, and as opposed to an older generation that doesn't quite understand saying that's what you do, you work for a company for 30 years, and then you get your gold watch and you retire and you can get promoted. And then the younger generation is saying the money isn't doing as much for my benefit and for my enjoyment in life. The money isn't going as far and I'm spending all of this time and then taking out debt after debt in order to try to make it. And there is that quiet resignation. To me, that seems to be 
the connection between the moral obligation of the state and the difference in our relationship to money over the generations. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that or to that sentiment of this quiet resignation and what's going on there. Yeah, that's really, I mean, it's nice because one way of thinking about a social contract is it's it's a way in which the state in its role over our lives or our society is legitimated. That's not to say it's made just, it's also legitimated. It's made just in the eyes of the people who are expected to do their part in the system of cooperation. And a test for that, whether people are willing to do their part is like, are they willing to do what's required versus do violent revolt or whatever, right? So, or, or is there a backlash against the system or something like that? But there's a quieter form of uh, alienation, as you might put it, from the existing order. And that's, that's this quiet, quiet quitting, you know? So it's like, well, okay, I'll go through the motions, but in a way that's undetectable to the employer, you know, <laughs> I'll just be less productive, you know? And so I think that's just a newer form of a nooner manifestation of alienation with the existing social expectations. And what it shows is you haven't really got a fully legitimate social compact. And so that is something that's the first responsibility of a state. It's the very legitimacy of the state depends on its instituting and maintaining and upholding a a legitimate social contract. So you need to really change the terms of cooperation. I mean, as you were saying in earlier times, you know, there was more promise about getting ahead, you know, getting ahead over the years and college was free, you know, and things, you know, use in University of California was much cheaper, for example, you didn't require as much debt, you could expect to have your children do better. I mean, wages were just much higher, things like that. So even if you were working for the man as it were some company still, I mean, but I, I, by the way, since I'm a surfer, a lifelong surfer, I'm more, I I grew up watching that system, uh, like, you know, in the, in the seventies, eighties, like, kind of a gas that's what I was being asked to do because you know uh, surfers by this time in the 60s and 70s had sort of decided to carve out an alternative way of living so I'm like very early I've spent my whole life looking at the conventional expectations and uh, quietly quitting in sense of going there's no way I'm doing that you know like I'm going to do something else and a whole generation of surfers that came before me basically found ways of leaving unconventional lives so they could surf some of them also then joined capitalism by starting surf companies and getting rich that way it's <laughs> so, like going to visit so but a lot of people are you know who travel around the world and check out. I mean, the, the sort of van life and Instagram people just, just caught up to that, but that's been going on for 50 years among surfers for a long time. But for me, my path around that, just being a creative, as Rudy says, you know, I was like, oh, I always just been a creative and love surfing and want to do creative work. And then philosophy was just really appealing from the beginning and the university is really appealing because that's a place you can just just keep doing philosophy, keep learning things and doing figuring stuff out. And if you got the knack for it, you know, knack for writing and publishing and arguing and stuff and figuring out new things, then you can just kind of keep going. And so that's what I did. And then, you know, as a, I started doing popular writing as more of a side gig, a fun side pro- project, but it sort of, it fits with my own, that's my own sort of quiet quitting of the conventional expectation. Um, and that was during times when the system, ordinary system was more promising and it's much less promising for people now. So I totally understand why quiet quitting would be a thing. It's nice that it's being conceptualized and so that it's a, a social problem we could address for with just better, like a basic income payment, for example. The division that you were talking about, about the academic publishing versus the popular writing. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I mean, you're the chair of the philosophy department, yeah. Sierra Vine. Maybe, maybe you're like, I don't care. I'm going to say this answer. What do you get more joy from? Ah, what do I get? Well, they're two sides. They're different sides of the same joy, which is, um, yeah, I, I get joy from, I get them both in a complimentary way because there's sort of disadvantages of academic writing. I mean, the way I think about academic writing is there are things that you can't say in it. that are sort of a bigger scope. And I, I'll say those things in a, in pop writing because there's just looser. 
But if I was just doing pop writing, it wouldn't have the discipline and structure that I think is really important that you need to actually make clear advances and know and have really ha- feel like you have a deeper, clear understanding of things. And so they're really complementary. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to just totally give up the one for the other. And they sort of feed on each other in the sense that I have ideas from my academic work that give me ideas for things that might be a good popular writing project. But then that'll get me, a popular writing project will get me reading all kinds of things, thinking all kinds of thoughts sort of more out of the box that don't really fit any with any academic debates. And then I'll go back with new ideas within the academic debates and then say new things there. So to me, it's like the same kind of creative, promiscuous meandering around topics, you know, that I like. So it's just me, like, I mean, I do find like publishing more than enough within academic stuff. And I plan to keep doing that till, you know, till I retire or maybe even longer than that. But I have just have time being blessed enough to have a great research, you know, oriented job to be able to write the other stuff as, as well. I hope I don't have to choose. <laughs> no, no. That, I, I, it was me putting you on the spot and you yeah. giving the most diplomatic answer humanly possible. I like both equal. They're <laughs> perfect. That's, that was that was perfect. Sorry. Go, go ahead, Gwen. Sorry about that. So I'm going to put Aaron on the spot. So Rudy often teases me. Let's see if you can settle this. Philosophy has no answers. <laughs> I am wondering if you can give some sort of a pitch, especially today. When it comes to education, there seems to be... Well, what I'm feeling is that we're only going to, maybe it's because of the economic crunch, but it's like only study Mm -hmm. what is perceived to be useful. And um, subjects like philosophy, it's almost as though they have to market themselves and do this work to be like, oh, here's applied ethics. Here's applied this and that in order to prove that it is useful. And there seems to, I have felt this, this loss of the joy of studying something for its own sake, and that that is enhancing one's thinking skills that then radiates into other areas of their lives. So I am just wondering, what is your ideas about the importance of teaching philosophy and having it as part of an education, of a university education? What is its value? Yeah, um, great. Yeah, that's... And does it have any answers? (laughs) No, but let's, well, well, you know, or call it intellectual virtue or something like that is mm-hmm. that matters for its own sake for not just for problem solving and practical problems, but your own character and who you are as a person. And then all the other things you learn and understand about life. That's the sort of very quick answer. I mean, like, look, when you're going doing something that matters, something associated with money, maybe people are doing that with all kinds of assumptions that they're not bothering to think through, right? And if you don't really have a sort of the philosophical wherewithal or understanding, it's hard enough to know your assumptions and know how to question them anyway. If you don't have the philosophical tools, you just go along and you can make a lot of, just make a lot of mistakes, right? So when you're really open to asking and considering different philosophical answers to questions, that gives you in a way of having critical distance from what's ordinarily assumed. And then one thing that philosophy definitely does is give you a sense, help you try to articulate what the best way of understanding a question is, and then what are the best answers to that question. Now, sometimes you definitely rule out bad answers to that question, and you get you narrow down the options, right, as it were, so you get sort of the best options among uh, uh, to a question. Sometimes you think none of these answers are very good answers to the question. Maybe that's a bad question. But then you think, well, what's a better way of understanding the question that's really at issue there? And that might lead you to a new, better, more adequate kind of answer that illuminates like both our academic understanding, but also might lead to have different practical upshot. So like that process of thought of critical understanding is just tremendously valuable. I mean, it's it's behind all of the science and all the technology and all the everything that went into all the things that you're doing in your practical life that supposedly matter. It's all reflecting. But even still, and what are you giving up when you just forget all that 
and then just do the thing that matters. Well, you're giving up understanding in a certain way because you're just kind of going along with a lot of assumptions without really understanding why you're the assumptions and, you know, in, in light of alternatives. And, and I think that's the real beauty of it's philosophy and other, you know, other dis academic disciplines. It's, it's not just that it gives you critical thinking capacities and it's not just that it gives you intellectual virtue. It, the goal is the same thing as in science, which is understanding of the world, having a deeper and comprehensive understanding of the world. And that's not just so you can predict it and mess with it and get build bridges and manage economies. It's also so you can grasp the sublimity of the universe, of the cosmos, our place in it, you know, of meaning in life. And I mean, to really have a deep appreciation of that and live from an appreciation of that. I mean, this is what's why scientists do what they do. I mean, it's sober wonderment about the universe and a desire to understand it a little bit better. I mean, that's the kind of thing that philosophers are doing with all kinds of questions that science can't settle or economics can't settle per se. You know, I mean, it's really a sim similar kind of impulse. So an understanding that leads to a kind of deep appreciation about life and existence. That's, I think, the real beauty of it. Do you remember the first book that you read of philosophy and you thought, I need to read more of this? What is it that sparked it for you? For me, it was the apology. Oh, okay. Well, um, that's a great question. I don't really know um, which book it was, but I did start reading really a lot, a lot of philosophy early on. Less so in high school, but more college, early college. Uh, but I think what I just liked about it originally in a logic class, which gave me this thrill, was just the idea that you could take have these deep questions, which I really cared about, but didn't know how to sort of manage my way through. But I could manage my view of things. I could figure out what I thought was true and have a kind of control over a command over the issues just by using logic to clarify arguments and positions and questions and stuff like that. That was just totally exhilarating to me. And I, I just thought, oh, this is awesome. Sort of the way I love surfing, I was still, you know, a dedicated surfer at the time. I just thought, oh, I want to really keep doing this. And so I just kept doing those. I've been doing those two things my whole life now, basically, you know, since then, yeah. To kind of take what you're, the answer that you gave, which is incredible, because we actually got an answer to a question from a philosopher. So <laughs> we got cursed here. So if I, if I can extrapolate your answer down to, you know, a little nugget, I would say the opposite of what you said is actually a philosophy of the philosophy of ignorance is bliss. Meaning you can also choose to go through your life, not asking questions, doing things because that's the way they're done and not trying to get into the meaning of everything. Live your life that way if you would like to. And that's certainly one way of going about it. Or you can choose to study philosophy and ask a whole bunch of questions that may or may not be answered. But the, the fact that you're asking those questions means that, you know, you're dedicating a portion of your brain and your life towards trying to find answers to those questions. Whether or not you will really doesn't matter. It's the curiosity component of it that is the goal of studying philosophy. Yeah, that's the process. But there is an achievement, which is understanding also. I think you can come, even if you don't sure, not sure how exactly to answer a question, you have an understanding of the issue or the question of okay. a kind you couldn't have before had you not really thought it through. And that understanding can lead to just a way of being in life, going through life with wonderment and like astonishment at things that are taken for granted. I mean, a lot of beauty and life and enjoyment of life can come out of the simplest moments because it can ref like just there's something you've come to understand because you've worked at it. And suddenly in this moment, you see it's like, I don't know. I, here's this. I don't know this example. I'm walking my dog and I see her just like 
hearing all of the sound, knowing she has this tremendous hearing, you know, this tremendous sense of smell, and, and but her vision's not as good as mine because of having thought about per- perception and embodiment and some other connection, ab- abstract intellectual context, trying to understand questions about that. Now I'm having this moment of joy with walking my dog because I'm just trying to experience the attunement she experiences to the world in a way that a human doesn't. And I'm trying to kind of extrapolate what is it like to be a Pomeranian where she's clearly just like flourishing in the world, just totally absorbed in the, you know, sounds coming from all directions and the smells coming, you know, and I know that I can't totally appreciate what she's experiencing, but I'm both aware of the limitations of my own ability to experience the world, but then very present with her like expanded ability to appreciate it. And then you try to listen to the world and think about how she's, you know, you know, she's hearing that thing behind you, those bird noises, this creaky sound, this smell, there's a confluence there that, so that's the simplest experience walking your dog. You know, normally I'm just daydreaming about whatever. I can have this moment of complete presence in the world and something completely ordinary of a kind that's awesome in the new sense, you know, you might just stumble into that because you spend a lot of time thinking about perception and embodiment and that's an achievement. Yeah. Um, Rudy has fabulous hair and he also is afraid of aliens. And I sometimes wonder what it would be like to walk through the world as Rudy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) it's not, it's not, it's not, it is not a good thing. I, I, I try to, I try to give a little bit of taste. I try to give the world a little bit of, of a taste of what it's like to live in this brain. So you don't want to know why it's all self-serving. So maybe people will come at me with um, sympathy and forgiveness for whatever I am or whatever I say, because I am afraid of aliens and I, and I, and I do think I can live forever and I, and I am afraid of death. And, and yes, that's a whole other side thing. Uh, Aaron, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, I know we're, we're getting close to to the end of the hour here. Today's a pretty monumental day. You know, our country might go one direction and might go another direction. How important will this election be on things like the future of trade, the future of our money, the future of, of, of everything? Or is it, do we put too much credence in who is in power here in the United States and worry too much about it? I'm curious about your thoughts about it. Because one of the reasons why I asked that is because the other night I, I was having drinks with somebody. I was like, oh, tomorrow's a huge day, the election. I'm pretty worried about this. I'm pretty worried about that. And the person that was sitting across from me having a drink was like, I don't worry about any of that type of stuff because that none of that will really affect me. I thought that was an interesting approach, but maybe that's the best approach. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I don't think that that's very tenable point of view. I mean, it's not because it affects immediate things like the economy or even things like climate change, which it really does. But I mean, really at stake right now is whether or not we're going to have a functioning republic or not, or a more authoritarian kind of system. That's the trend around the world. It's They're old political forces that were at work at, that originate within the United States and Jim Crow era. And like we're behind, you know, fascistic movements around World War II. But, you know, they're back in full force. So on the big scope of history, you know, whether we're going to have a republic or not of a kind we've assumed, like this person probably assumed that they assume that's the world they were born into. They assumed it was going to continue, but it, it doesn't last unless you sort of fight for, it, unless you vote, unless you uh, hold stand up for principle. And there is fortunately more of that on with, even within both parties, that's something to be hopeful about. So I think the stakes are really high. I mean, I wasn't as sour about this election myself because I, I mean, I wasn't as well, 
I turned out I wasn't as despairing about the polling and stuff, but I think those really are the stakes. Um, and it really is a time to be worried. I mean, I think younger par- people apparently do see the stakes. Like they do see the, the thing that the older people, the, the world that they were promised, as it were, they just think it'll go on like that. Younger people see the fragility of it um, and see, well, wait a minute, you know, there's no guarantees. We were mentioning this earlier, you know, and so we have to vote like our futures depend on it. And I think they're right. I think that they really do. It, I mean, today it turns out to be a more optimistic note on this, on this side, but I think whether we're going to have a republic really should unite the parties and it, it isn't it isn't yet so a little we might be a little closer after yesterday's election thank you aaron i appreciate you coming on the show sharing your wisdom aaron thank you very much for coming on i enjoyed reading your paper i'm looking forward to your memoir that's going to be so cool i it already just the by cert- reading yeah. the first part i think it's going to be fantastic oh thanks so much i appreciate that yeah i've just got a few chapters left on it i've written almost all of it since like uh, really August, so yeah, it's been really incredible. All right, I love it. Well, maybe you'll come back on to talk about your memoir. Oh yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> this was this was fun. I I, I, I learned a lot, and I, we can we could have a. You know what? I would love to do a whole episode just called the Surfing Life Philosophy or something along those lines. Oh, yeah. Just just focused on that because I I yeah. think that's really really neat. I'm kind of obsessed with the van life culture and and the, you know <laughs> cool. that. I'd be very interested in that. Yeah, cool. Lots to say about it. Great. Well, cool. thanks you guys. It's really fun. Thank you, sir. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you'd like to get in touch, reach out goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com or check us out on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. Screenshot your favorite episode and tag us. And if you'd like to join our book club and get extra content, go to patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. I'll link that in the show notes. And also, don't forget to check out newsly.me for your one-month free premium subscription when you use offer code THEDETAILS. Okay, until next time, bye!